Again, we're glad you're here at Grace, and as we come together to praise you, to praise God, to praise uh, what he's done for us, to sing praises, to um, learn together from scripture, we want our hearts focused on him. But God has called us together as a church to, to be united, to be connected, and so we want you to, to do that too, and, and one of the reasons we're, we're trying to make that happen or how we think we could do that more effectively is through this app and stuff like that. So if you're not so tech savvy, uh, get some help. Try to make that happen. This will connect us better. It will keep you connected to your church family better and help us more effectively do what God has called us to do. So try to jump on board there. Again, we're glad that you're here. We're, we're in a series, just a two-week series, a short series on a short book. And the book is Philemon. And if you would turn there, if you're using one of the Bibles from the chair rack, it's page 1195. It's just one page. It's a very short book. Or, or if you're flipping to it, it's right before Hebrews. It's easy to miss, or you can grab it on your app. But the series is called Restoring Relationships, and Mike kicked this off for us last week, and he introduced us to some characters, Paul, uh, who is in prison, also a, a friend of his, Philemon, who is a church leader, talked about how Philemon had a great reputation how he was known to help others, how he's known to impact others. But then as, as it, it goes, Paul then has this huge appeal to make, which is the occasion of this letter to Philemon that, that accompanied the letter to the Colossian church. And, but in this Philemon letter, Paul's making an appeal. He's asking Philemon to do something, and it's going to cost Philemon something to do that. And so that's, that's how it all breaks out. And that's what we want to tune into. And, and, we're, and through this, it's, he's asking Philemon to restore a broken relationship that Philemon has with another person. And so Philemon, great reputation, by all accounts seems to be a great guy, but he's got a broken relationship with somebody. And it just reminds us that can happen to all of us. And Paul appeals to him to, to fix it. But there's a complicating issue here, and especially for us, from our mindset, that, that kind of complicates this message. And that is that Paul is appealing to his friend Philemon to restore a relationship with a man named Onesimus. And Onesimus is a slave who ran away from Philemon. And so it has this issue in it that, that's a, an emotionally charged issue for us, especially in America today, the issue of slavery. And we see that all the time. We just saw that a couple of weeks ago when Colin Kaepernick, former NFL quarterback, uh, although he's a spokesman for Nike, Nike came out with a shoe. The shoe had a, a, one of the old flags of America with 13 stars on it. There's different variations of that, but this one's called the Bessie Ross flag, and and he objected to that, saying that that was a symbol from an era that represented slavery. So Nike pulled all those shoes. And, and so this is an emotional issue today. And because of that, it's important for us to have the proper historical context to slavery as we enter into the Bible. Because in the Bible, there, you know, there, the issue of slavery is, is a reality in, in Scripture, in the first century, the New Testament was written, and also in past centuries. And, and I, I, I'm not going to get political here, 
but we have to understand this issue accurately from a historical context. And, and so let me just point out a few things. First of all, slavery is evil. We all get that. But slavery existed on every continent in the world. Every continent. Slavery existed uh, on the North American continent prior to Europeans arriving. Indian tribes enslaved each other. There were 500 Indian tribes, all, a lot of them warring against each other and enslaving people. If you know the history of Fremont, there was a white captive or slave that was brought here named James Whitaker, who later married another white captive. And on and on, there was just a lot of captivity and slavery and all that stuff. You just have to, to know that. Slavery was not even controversial in the world before the 18th century. It was just a given. And, and because we see that so differently in America, it's good for just to kind of take a step back and have maybe a different historical um, perspective. And so I want to read some words uh, from a guy named Thomas Sowell. He's a, a Harvard graduate a brilliant man. He's got a PhD from the University of Chicago and he's brilliant in a lot of different areas. But here's what he says about slavery. So, are you ready? It's a little bit of a long quote, longer than I normally do. So, are you ready for this? Not going to fall asleep on me? Good. All right, here's what he says Of all the tragic facts about the history of slavery, the most astonishing to an American today is that although slavery was a worldwide institution for thousands of years, nowhere in the world was slavery a controversial issue prior to the 18th century. People of every race and color were enslaved and enslaved others. White people were still being bought and sold as slaves in the Ottoman Empire decades after American blacks were freed. Everyone hated the idea of being a slave, but few had any qualms among, about enslaving others. Slavery was just not an issue, not even among intellectuals, much less among political leaders, until the 18th century. And then it was an issue only in Western civilization. Among those who turned against slavery in the 18th century were... George Washington, and he's mentioning people who had slaves. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and other American leaders. You could research all of the 18th century African or Asian or Middle East without finding any comparable rejection of slavery there. But who is singled out for scathing criticism today? American leaders of the 18th century. Deciding that slavery was wrong was much easier than deciding what to do with millions of people from another continent or of another race and without any historical preparation for living as free citizens in a society like that of the United States where they were 20% of the population. It is clear from the private correspondence of Washington, Jefferson, and many others that there Moral rejection of slavery, slavery was unambiguous. I mean, it was very clear. But the practical question of what to do now had them baffled. That would remain so for more than half a century. That question was finally answered in a war in which 
one life was lost for every six people freed. There are 620,000 casualties in the Civil War. Uh, 3.9 million slaves were freed. Maybe that was the only answer. But don't pretend today that it was an easy answer or that those who grappled with a dilemma in the, in the 18th century were some special villains when most leaders and most people around the world saw nothing wrong with slavery. So that's just putting slavery kind of in a historical context because we see it so much different. There was slavery everywhere. Again, not justifying. Slavery is an evil. But it was just an evil that was worldwide. And so we, we need to have a, a little bit better context of slavery without maybe the emotion that's attached to it in America. And, and the reason that I want you to understand the historical context of slavery is because people use the issue of slavery to attack the Bible. And they do that because the Bible does not condemn all forms of slavery. It doesn't condone slavery, but the Bible does not condemn all forms of slavery. The Bible does condemn kidnap-based slavery, which is what America practiced in the uh, 18th century, but it didn't condemn other forms of slavery. The punishment, by, by, by the way, in the Bible for slavery was death uh, for kidnap-based slavery. In, in Exodus 21, Exodus, this is in the first five books, this is the Pentateuch, this earliest part of scripture we have. Exodus 21, 16 says, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. And then the Bible also provides protections for slaves who have escaped and come to, to God's people. Deuteronomy, again, one of the earliest books, the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 23, 15 says, You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose, and in one of your towns where it pleases him, you shall not mistreat him. So there's protection of slaves in Scripture. But the Bible does not specifically condemn all forms of slavery. The other types of slavery besides kidnap-based slavery, for example, are captives from warfare or people uh, indebting, uh, in bonding themselves because of debt. So those two things was, uh, you know, indenturing oneself to pay a debt or taking captives. The Bible's not, it's not saying it's right. It's just not condemning it. And because of that, Bible takes a lot of heat. Um, so in the Bible, it's very familiar with slavery. I mean, there are heroes in Scripture that were slaves, right? Joseph was a slave, you know, a hero in the Bible. Moses was born as a slave, responsible for the first five books of the Bible. Daniel, a few weeks, you know, a couple months ago, we were all about Revelation, or all about end times, talking about Daniel. He was a slave as well, so it's there. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7.21, Christian slaves are told, or slaves in general are told, if, they, if it's possible for them to buy their freedom, buy their freedom. Be free, if, if you can make that work. But if the Bible would have condemned all forms of slavery, not just kidnap-based slavery, there would have been insurrection and there would have been you know, people, owners, and slaves being massacred. 
And more importantly, the gospel message, the message of scripture would have been swallowed up by the message of social reform. So the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible takes a different tack. Rather, the message of the Bible, which is primarily the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, changed the world one heart at a time inside out. And that actually led to the end of most slavery in the world. And here's how, let me tie the dots here. So Christianity starts in Palestine or Israel, and then it spreads around the Mediterranean Sea. It especially flourishes in Europe, or what we would call the West. And so you have a lot of Christian influence there. And then basically the way most slavery ended was that nations in the West started putting pressure, either military pressure or economic pressure, on people who practiced wide-scale slavery. And that happened really, so slavery, most of the slavery in the world ended because of two reasons with the Two reasons with the leadership of Europe. Number one, Europe happened to have the power at that time in history because they were the first to effectively utilize gunpowder in warfare so all of a sudden they could defeat their enemies. So they had a lot of power, a lot of colonies, a lot of say. So they had the power. But secondly, they had a Christian worldview from Scripture that taught them that all people were equal, that we were all sinners, that we're all the same in the cross. We have God's chosen people the Jewish people and everybody else, all the rest of us, the Gentile people, that God loved us all the same and that we're all the same at the foot of the cross. So because of those two reasons, that's how the West ended most of slavery in the world, led by first England, then America, and then some other European nations. So just to put this all into a historical context of, of what, where we're coming from, but now... In Philemon, we get to go back before that to the first century when slavery still exists and we get a, a ringside seat or a bird's eye view or a snapshot of how that plays out within a local church, this issue. So now we're going to read from Scripture and, and I think we have maybe a better historical context for slavery. So are we ready now to read Scripture? Okay, because you're actually more excited about reading the quote that I read earlier. This is the Bible. This is even better than that quote. So are we ready for Philemon? Yes. Okay, Philemon. Mike left off, I think, in, in verse, it's just one chapter. So it left off in verse 11. I want to back up just a little bit and pick it up in verse 8 to make sure we get all the context here. Here we go, verse 8. Therefore, so Paul writing the Colossian church sends a letter, but also another more personal letter to Philemon, Although it's also kind of addressed to the church as well. But here he goes. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. See, he's telling Philemon this. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me 
so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit... From you in the Lord, refresh my heart in Christ, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you'll do even more than what I say. So boom, Paul writes this letter, the pressure's on Philemon, he knows Paul, he's a great leader, and Paul sends his runaway slave Onesimus back, who now has become, ended up meeting Paul Becoming a believer, now Onesimus is hand-carrying this letter to Philemon. So he's standing there, and the whole church is there. It's a personal letter, but it's also in the context he wrote it to Philemon and the church. And so they're all there, and he's reading it. And the pressure's on because Paul is sort of calling Philemon out to do this big favor. He makes this big appeal to Paul. And what we learn from this short letter is just about relationships that are broken because we all experience broken relationships is really three things number one we all experience broken relationships number two there's a why why must we restore relationships that's in here and then number three how do we do that when, when it's really messy how do we actually restore relationships so number one we all face conflict in relationships Philemon Paul's saying great guy great reputation really helped a lot of people but even Philemon has a broken relationship here. Now, this is a major offense to Philemon. Because when Onesimus left, he stole from Philemon to finance his journey. And so he owes Philemon. And, and just like if somebody stole from you, I mean, you would feel like they owed you. That's kind of the situation, first century. And, but then Onesimus meets Paul while he's gone, becomes a believer. Paul's in minimum security prison. And Onesimus becomes a big help to Paul as a believer to help Paul's ministry. And then there's this play on words in the Greek that I think Michael pointed out to us that the word Onesimus, the name Onesimus, in Greek actually means helpful. And so he's saying, he, you know, he's helpful to me. But, and that was kind of a common name for slaves at the time. And now he's sent back to hand deliver this letter and basically asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And, and I think a lot of times we hear kind of a, a messy, sticky situation like that. We face those same times of situations, not involving slavery. But we involve, how many of you have ever 
had a relationship that was important to you and you got sideways and it got messed up and it was kind of broken and it needed to be fixed. Anybody? That happens a lot. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, that's never happened to me, you're not living. You know, you're not doing enough. You need to meet some people. You need to get married. You need to hang out, you know. But because it happens. You know, relationships get broken. Relationships get messed up. It happens to everybody. We see it every day. Personal relationships, marriages. Tragically, you see it in the local church. Relationships that are in need of reconciliation. How do you fix that? And broken relationships in the church are especially damaging in the church's ability to do what Jesus wants us to do. So, here's the next thing. If conflict is so normal... If it's just what happens to everybody, then why is it so important that we restore relationships? Why is, if, if, this, if conflict is inevitable, why even bother with fixing relationships? Why should we restore broken relationships? Well, first of all, because we want to live the way God told us to live, and this is what God told us to do. So yeah, we can just go around and letting those broken relationships happen like a wrecking ball all through our life and not worry about it, but that's not the way Jesus told us to live. Jesus told us that when we do wrong, we need to make it right. Whether that was before we were a believer or after we are a believer, we've got to make it right. When we've been wronged, if it's a relatively small thing, we need to let it go so it doesn't affect our relationships. If it's such a big thing we can't let it go, then we, we have to make that right if it's serious. And then repentance and restoration can happen. I, I got to tell you, though, today, and, and it may be because everybody's just talking about one side of, of God, God's love and forgiveness, and, and we get that. But we're in a culture today in America where people... They will do some horrendous, immoral thing. And then they'll just keep doing it. And then they'll sort of expect everybody, if they're Christians, to forgive them while they're still doing it. And while they're criticizing their Christian faith, if they're having trouble forgiving them. This is not what the Bible's talking about. Jesus is talking about forgiveness... But he's really doing it in the context of somebody who's coming and saying, please forgive me. You know, and that's how you restore a relationship. So when he taught on it, it was a, as he taught, as he told the story, it was a person coming and asking for forgiveness. An attitude of wanting, of recognizing they had done wrong and wanting to make it right. Then we as believers, if that's the case, we have to forgive we have no right to withhold it, he's saying. But today you have people, they're not repentant. Sometimes they're still doing their immoral behavior that's destroying their family or their relationships. And then they demand that everybody just accept it. That's not what Scripture's talking about. You cannot put a relationship back together in that kind of a situation. It doesn't work. And that's not what the Bible's telling us to do. And secondly, it's not only why fix these relationships, because that's how God told us to live, but also because, and that's being addressed here, there has to be unity in the church. So there's just us living our lives out everywhere, but especially God saying, in the church there has to be unity. For us to have unity, we've got to have that kind of forgiveness. 
our unity in Jesus, as we meet together in church, is far greater than any differences we may have. If we're Christians, we're united in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Him. And Jesus is, is building His church now, today, all over the world. And if, you, if we're believers, God is expecting that we're involved in that. Not just coming in and hearing teaching, but more than that, that's part of it, that's growing, hopefully. But, but to be involved, to give and to serve and to impact others and to tell other people about Jesus, to invite. All, that's what we're all supposed to do as believers. And we do that best when we have unity. We can only have unity when there's forgiveness. Now, some of you might think, wow, Kevin must know something. Something's going on. No, no I don't know anything. I'm just saying, it's, it's just every group of people struggles with this. We need to make sure we get it right. Jesus prayed, John 17, Jesus prayed for the future church, us, to have unity. That was his heart. We'd never let personal conflicts interrupt the unity of the church. And, and because it detracts from the mission of the church. And I'm telling you, for example, Grace Community Church, we need unity now more than ever. I'm not saying we don't have unity. I think we do. But we need unity now more than ever in the history of our church. So if that's the why, Jesus said so, that we want to live his way, and, and he's, he wants especially unity in the church, then the next question is, how? It gets messy. Relationships are messy. How do we fix it? How do we restore relationships? And what we see in this small letter is that we restore relationships by going, by forgiving, and forgiving is really hard, and so we do that by remembering. Going, forgiving, and remembering. We go to the person. If we've wronged them, we should go to them in repentance, saying, wow, I, I know I was wrong, and I'm sorry, and I don't want to ever do that again. That's, that's the repentance part. No matter what the situation, though, whether you've been wronged or you've wronged somebody else, doesn't matter which side of it you're on. As a believer, you're obligated to go to the other person with the motive of restoring the relationship, not an option. As a believer, no matter which side you're on, whether you've been wronged or you've wronged somebody else or somebody else thinks you've wronged them, as a believer, you go, that's your responsibility, you go with the intention of restoring that relationship. If we've wronged anyone, we go to them and we try to make it right. Exactly what Paul tells Onesimus, even if it's hard. Paul's telling Onesimus, even though the Bible says don't return or run away, Paul's telling Onesimus, go back and make this right. I'll send this letter. You know, Onesimus, he probably doesn't want to do that. But he's a believer, so he does it. And then Paul challenges Philemon to, to respond in the right way. Same with us. We go to the person. We go to them. We acknowledge our wrong. We change our behavior. We ask for forgiveness. That changing of the behavior, that's the repentance part. We change. We say, I'm wrong. I want to do this. Please forgive me. And, and then the relationship is restored. 
if we have been wronged by somebody else, if it's a minor thing that maybe they don't even realize they've done, let it go. Let it go. Don't be petty. If it's a little thing, and, and let it go. If it's a major thing that's disrupted your relationship that you can't let go, maybe it's ongoing or maybe it's just a, it's a deal breaker, it's a huge thing, then you have to go to them. Tell them how they've wronged you and try to reconcile. If they agree with you, then they'll say, wow, didn't realize I did or maybe I did or thanks for, you know, I'm sorry. Repentance, I don't want to do that again. And then you'll forgive them and your relationship is restored. It's more than forgiveness, it's restoring a relationship. If they don't agree with you, then recheck, is this a minor thing or a major thing? Because maybe it's more minor than you thought. And if it's still major, then you do what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 18. You grab one or other two, one or two other mature believers and you go back to the person. And then they come sort of as believers going, okay, what, what's the deal here? How can we fix this? And those two other people may end up telling you, you're being petty. Or they may tell the other piece of person, hey, man, what, you can't see this? You did a major thing to them. They will help. And if that doesn't work, Jesus says, then take it to the church. And then the leaders of the church or the church depending on its size, that they'll try to become involved in order to reconcile the relationship. The goal is always reconciling the relationship. Not pretending something doesn't hurt or it hasn't happened or somebody doesn't owe. No, it's fixing because it is a legitimate issue. And then that, so that's going. And then once you go, what you're looking for is forgiving. Forgiving happens by absorbing the debt. Forgiving happens when we pay the cost. If you've forgiven somebody something and it didn't cost you, they didn't need your forgiveness. I don't, I'm not just talking financially. Forgiving somebody always costs because of this. If, somebody, if you need to forgive somebody, that's because they owe you. They've done something wrong to you. It could be they, they stole from you, but it could be they ruined your reputation or they violated your trust or they owe you and they know they owe you. So to forgive somebody is to wipe the slate. Forgiving somebody means saying to that person who legitimately owes you, hey, I forgive you. You don't owe me anymore. I'm wiping the slate clean. I'm zeroing out the balance ledger. You don't owe me anymore. That's what forgiveness is. Legitimate forgiveness always costs. And so if you can ever think of a time where somebody, where you forgave somebody and it was just nothing. I mean, you didn't give up anything to forgive them. They didn't, you didn't, well, you probably didn't need to forgive them because they didn't owe you anything. Forgiveness always involves a cost. That's what Paul's saying here. He's intervening and saying, Philemon, forgive Onesimus. 
Oh, and if he took anything, stole from you or whatever, I'll pay it. Charge that to my account. So Paul is willing to pay the debt. If Philemon's not willing to, Paul's saying, if you're not willing to pay this debt, if you're not willing to absorb this debt, I'll pay it for him. I'll do it for you. There's always a debt when forgiveness is required. It always costs for a debt to be forgiven. And that's what he's saying here. And that's hard. Because it costs us. We have to give something up. Maybe it's you know, our pride or our reputation. or We have to give it up. To erase the debt. So how do we do that? What equips us to do that? We don't like to give things away like that. When somebody owes us. We don't like to write off debts when they legitimately owe us. How do we do that? By remembering. This is, this is what Paul is telling Philemon. And, and check this out how he says it. Did you catch that? You know, Paul's writing Philemon, forgive, forgive Onesimus. Hey, if he has any debt, if you're unwilling to forgive him, just charge it to my account. I'll pay. And then he, he says that, that thing. Remember, remember your debts, Philemon. He's asking Philemon to restore Onesimus. And then he reminds Philemon that Philemon owes Paul everything. He does that in verse 19. Did, did, you, did you hear how he said that? It's kind of funny. Because here's what he says, verse 19. Let me back up. I know you guys aren't ready for me to do that. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay. And then he says this. Not to mention... And then what do we always do when we say not to mention? We mention. You know, that's what Paul did. Not to mention. Okay, don't mention it. No, I'll go ahead. You know, not to mention to you, that you, to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. He's blasting him, right? He's saying, by the way, you need to forgive this guy, forgive him his debts, and if you're unwilling to forgive him, I'll pay. And by the way, remember how much you owe me. Everything. And, and we don't use this kind of language. That would be like me going to you. Let, let's say that I or one of the pastors had some role in you coming, becoming a believer. And then later you're having an argument with somebody. And then whatever pastor that had whatever role in you becoming a believer comes to you and says, forgive them. And you go, I don't want to forgive them. They owe me. And he says, you owe me everything. What? I thought God saved me. No, you owe me. God used me to make you a believer. Do it. I mean, that's what he does. Could you imagine? That wouldn't play today very well. I'm just saying. That's what Paul does with Philemon. Remember the debt. Actually, the, the Bible never even tells us how Philemon responded. I mean, Paul's putting all this pressure on. The church knows it. What's, what's Philemon going to do? We don't know. We think he did what Paul said. Here's why we think that. Because historically, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, we have the letter. Because if Paul wasn't going to do this, there's a real good chance when an apostle wrote Philemon to do something and Philemon didn't want to do it, it'd be like, let's just get rid of this. Letter gone. 
But apparently Philemon's saying, hey, check this out, what Paul's saying. And, he, and he's even allowing it to be passed around. It was a pretty good indication that he did what Paul, what Paul asked him to do. But not only that in history, and we don't know this for sure, a couple of decades later, there's actually a bishop in a nearby city, and guess what his name is? Onesimus is a leader in the church. And again, common name for a slave, so it might not be the same guy, but it'd be very unusual for a slave to rise up to be a leader of churches in a city. But anyway, so that could be him. But the point is, yeah, we think he did it. But here's what I'm getting. That, that's just then. What about now? We have a debt. We have a debt. We incur debts all the time in relationships. Wouldn't it be great to have a big brother like Paul or somebody, a friend like Paul who's watching out for you, and every time you incurred a debt with somebody, he sort of interviewed and say, hey, Kevin, you kind of messed that up. Go ask for forgiveness. And by the way, if they owe you anything, tell them I'll take care of it. You'll take care of it? Yeah, I'll take care of it. Great friend, right? We all have a better friend than Paul in Jesus. Because Jesus has already paid all of our debts. He's already paid for all of our wrongs at great cost by dying on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Jesus died as, as our substitute paying all of our debts, our moral debts to God. So that just simply through faith, we can be forgiven, we can be cleansed, we can be refreshed, we can be renewed, and our sins are gone from us in our relationship with God. We all have a better friend than Paul and Jesus. And Jesus, whom we owe everything to, if you're a believer, is telling us, Forgive. Forgive. Go. Try to make the relationship right. If, they're, if it's a big deal and if they're repentant, forgive. You don't have any right to withhold forgiveness because I've forgiven you of everything. And we need to put that into practice in our lives today so if there's any relationship that you know that's broken and I'm not saying there might be a broken relationship and you've tried and you've gone and gone and gone okay I get that I'm not talking to you but there's any relationship you have that's broken and it doesn't matter if it's their fault or your fault it does not matter which in both circumstances God's telling you as a believer to go to and try to make it right and if you've never done that then you need to do that because Jesus is telling you to do that and he paid it all for you and you owe him everything and that's what he wants from us let's stand together for prayer father god we thank you for your goodness and your love for us and lord just here we have this book philemon it's all about forgiveness the word forgiveness not even there but every line's just dripping with forgiveness. And God, we thank you for that because we realize that at great cost, you've forgiven us. You've paid for all our debts, all our sin, and you offer us relationship with you and cleansing and freedom from all that sin just through faith. 
And God, we thank you for that greatest gift. We ask that you would help empower us to follow through on what you are asking us to do. Lord, help us to love you more, and we love you more by doing what you say. Lord, help us to forgive. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. Next week we are starting one of the most important series in the history of our church. Getting ready for Tiffin. See you then.